Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sally Becker. And I'm Mark Dunley. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with an overview of last week's elections with Blair Horner of Nyperg. Then we talk for our peace bucket with Medea Benjamin about the latest on Ukraine, starting with a missile that killed two in Poland. Later on, Professor DeCasa talks about intersectionality and microaggressions in the medical field. After that, Cena gives us a preview of possible words worlds an immersive dance performance taking place on friday in troy and then finally a correspondent lavender lavender she brings us another vox pop segment speaking with people at retail stores but first headlines my bacon a green island plant-based bacon has been named a top invention by Time Magazine. My Bacon, created by a spin-off Ecovative Design, is sold locally. Ecovative works to create more environmentally friendly products from mushrooms. The Lehigh Hansen Cement Plant in Glens Falls, which has been in operation since 1893, will be closing next year's with operations shifting to Indiana according to the plant's Texas-based owners. The company said it will help the plant's 85 employees with financial and job search assistance. UAlbany has hired 27 professors specializing in artificial intelligence. They will be placed in almost every department to teach students how artificial intelligence affects their chosen field. Other educational institutions across the country are also focusing on integrating AI into instruction. Amtrak will be adding two new weekday trains to its busy schedule between New York City and Albany starting December 5th. There will now be 12 round-trip trains each weekday, but still one less than prior to the pandemic. Former UAlbany men's basketball player Luke Fitzulish has filed a lawsuit in federal court against Great Danes head coach Dwayne Killings, athletic director Mark Benson, and the university, stemming from a pregame incident involving the player and the coach in November 2021. The suit claims race played a major role in convincing the university to reverse its decision to terminate the coach and violated the UAlbany's campus and workplace violence prevention policy and program. In breaking news, the United States Senate on Wednesday advanced legislation to protect same-sex marriage, clearing a filibuster, and sending it on to near certain passage. In a 62 to 37 votes, 12 Republicans voted with all Democrats to move forward. Uh, after negotiated, reach a bipartisan deal to include protections for religious liberty. The vote on passage could occur as soon as this week. The House passed a same-sex marriage bill without a religious liberty component in July, 
with support from nearly 50 House Republicans. If the Senate passes this version, the bill will head back to the House for approval. That's it for headlines. For our first segment, Blair Horner of Nyperg joins Mark Dunley of Hudson Mohawk Magazine to discuss the 2022 election results, including its potential impact on environmental and climate issues. We're joined today by Blair Horner, Executive Director of Nyperg, New York Public Interest Research Group. Last Tuesday, of course, was uh, Election Day. Um, and kind of surprising results, uh, not so much in New York, but particularly nationwide. But there were some interesting results in New York. So we've asked Blair to join us to just sort of give us an overview of those results and what it may mean for the upcoming uh, legislative session. So, 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 Blair, what were some of your quick reactions to what happened on, on Tuesday, particularly uh, in New York State and anything uh, of interest in the Capital District? Well, you know, in many ways, it's a status quo election. All of the Democrats that ran statewide in New York won. Uh, both houses of the legislature are controlled by Democrats with overwhelming majorities, and they will be again next year by overwhelming majorities. I mean, where there's interesting stuff is when you sort of get down to the district level, more more interesting stuff. Uh, the congressional Democrats uh, they, a bunch of seats that they were in, uh, they flipped to Republican. And it may, in fact, be the margin uh, that gives the Republicans control of the House of Representatives. So that's not status quo. But if, if they do, it'll be with a narrow majority, which is the status quo for the Democrats. Um, the, uh, the Democrats took a beating uh, uh, in the suburbs, as far as I could tell, across the state, but certainly in the Hudson Valley and on Long Island. Um, and uh, there was some there's something happening in Brooklyn, uh, which, you know, is unusual because there were some Democratic assembly members who got beat there. So all in all, I mean, at, from the 30,000 foot level, Democrats run a blue state, overwhelming majorities in both houses. That looks pretty much like it does this year. Uh, but when you get down into some of the districts, primarily on the congressional side, uh, a combination of something going on with the Democrats and their inability, apparently, to uh, run campaigns in the suburbs. And to some extent, the lines that were drawn during the redistricting process uh, may, in fact, cost the Democrats control of the House of Representatives, which has national implications. Well, as somebody who lived, you know, in Brooklyn for the last for seven years, um, the southern part of Brooklyn is actually more conservative and the Democrats yeah. have been more conservative. And in fact, uh, they have been really some of the main opponents to the issue of divesting the state pension funds from um, fossil fuels. And particularly Peter Abate is one of the uh, members who lost uh, down in uh, Southern Brooklyn. He was chair of the Assembly Pensions Committee. And for whatever reason, a lot of public employees live in Southern Brooklyn. And so he's just sort of responsive uh, to it. But you mentioned the redistricting issue, which is likely, in fact, as you point out, to cause the Democrats control of the um, the House at the federal level. Or, you know, granted, the uh, legislative Democrats may have been a little bit uh, greedy and, and sort of blew the re, uh, decision process, which threw it into the courts, and they overturned the lines. But do you expect any reforms or changes to come uh, after this debacle? Yeah, I mean, you're right, Mark, that the, the lines that the, that the map makers drew this year 
were drawn initially by the legislature. New York and a constitutional amendment in 2014 advanced by then Governor Cuomo created this so-called independent redistricting commission, which was really equal numbers of Democrats and Republicans. Of course, the whole system collapsed. So the legislature drew the lines. The courts sort of interestingly to, to weigh in uh, said that the process by which the legislature made that decision was unconstitutional that this commission had to advance two sets of maps before the legislature could draw their own maps. And that commission only advanced one. And so on a procedural level, uh, the court over, uh, overruled the lines and then also said that they were greedy and they drew the lines in a way that was un unconstitutionally gerrymandered and appointed their own special master, a guy named Service from uh, Pennsylvania. And he drew the lines. And so in New York, uh, when the uh, the current um, uh, members of the House of, De uh, of Representatives, there's 27 seats from New York, 19 of them are Democrats. When the, the New York loses a seat uh, because it's a census, so now we have 26, when the Democrats drew the lines earlier this year, it looked like they could take 22 out of 26, but instead they have 15 out of 26. And so uh, that flip, uh, could make all the difference. And so will they do anything about it? I mean, they'd have to amend the Constitution. I'm sure they want to, uh, but, um, you know, whether or not they're willing to sort of stick their heads up out of the foxhole and do it, I don't know. Because our argument would be we want an independent redistricting commission, not the legislature. And Democrats argue back, not without some merit, that when the blue states are the only ones that do redistricting reform, for them, it's unilateral disarmament. Uh, and New York and California had this year an independent process. California has a commission. New York had the courts. Uh, but a lot of red states didn't make that. So, you know, that's the partisan argument. Uh, although we think from a good governance perspective, the United States of America should have the lines drawn by nonpartisan entities, not by political uh, by the political parties. So I don't know what will happen, though, this year. I'd be surprised if they did anything real. Now, one of the things that did change a bit or will change is that both chairs of the environmental committees uh, in the Senate, uh, he decided to leave after getting killed in his race last year for district attorney uh, down in Nassau County, which sparked part of the backlash against criminal justice reform. And then uh, Steve Inglebright, chair of the Assembly Environmental Committee, lost his race by about a thousand votes. What does that mean for environmental and climate issues moving forward? with new leadership uh, being needed in both houses on the environment? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, the, you're right. The guy in the Senate left. He left early uh, from his seat because he got shellacked running for Nassau County District Attorney. And in fact, Democrats took a beating last year in Nassau County. Uh, and um, so that opened up that seat and uh, the Republicans took it. Uh, on the assembly side, the long-term NCON chair uh, looks like he's going to lose. Uh, I don't think he's conceded yet, Mark. Um, and um, having two new NCON chairs could have you know, fundamental impact on policy, environmental policymaking. Now, what you know, what that looks like, of course, will be determined by who those people are. Uh, Senator Kaminsky, who was the Senator uh, NCON chair. Uh, you know, has his own worldview about what the issues are, as did uh, um, Assemblymember Stephen Engelbright. Whoever replaces them will have a big say on what the environmental policy looks like, but it will be different. It will certainly be different than it is now. Engelbright had essentially veto 
over environmental legislation in his house. And with him gone and replaced by a new person uh, that I presume that that person will not have, assuming that Engelbright ultimately does lose, I assume that um, uh, his replacement will not have the same authority within the conference when it comes to environmental issues. So it'll be, it, it could make a big, it could be a big deal. Now, that being said, Democrats, if they, I assume they're going to be looking at how can we do better in the suburbs, environmental issues is one area, is one area where they could actually do things. Uh, the Bond Act uh, on the ballot this year, there was a, uh, a vote on the Environmental Bond Act that had the biggest margin of victory for any statewide race. Uh, and it ran and it uh, passed in um, uh, over uh, passed in almost 50 count, 49 of the 62 counties in New York State approved the Bond Act. And so environmental issues have a lot of public support, so much so that people were willing to pay more to make it happen. And so I think that that could strengthen um, in both houses the interest in taking on environmental issues if Democrats are interested in trying to cobble together some sort of suburban strategy that gets them some votes. Well, we only have about a minute left. One of the things I saw before the election was that among Democrats, climate and abortion were the two big issues. But in a general election, at least on election night, Susan Arbetter on Spectrum was saying that uh, climate uh, actually finished second as the most important issue for the voters on election day. That was not something, especially that Hochul and, and many Democrats were running on. So in the last 20 seconds, <laughs> what's your hopes for climate next year? Well, I, you know, I think it's fr from the Democrats control New York State. If they're looking to build out their support in the suburbs, they're going to have to come up with real, meaningful, significant ways to deal with the climate crisis that the world is facing and to deal with environmental issues writ large, particularly drinking water and solid waste issues. I think all of those are issues that Democrats should really embrace and run significant proposals on, not just phony baloney reforms, but the real deal uh, if they want to build out their support in the suburbs. Blair Horner, uh, Executive Director of NYPERG, NYPERG.org, and this has been Mark Dunley for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So that was Blair Horner. Now, two issues we didn't get to. Um, one is in the next state legislative election cycle, uh, the partial public campaign finance system is going to kick in. New York City's had it for its races. So that will be very interesting to see what impact that might have. And then the really big issue that's taking place right now is, you know, the Democrats really did bad and, and probably, of course, uh, the Democrats nationally uh, control the House because of their misplay on so many uh, levels. And most Democrats are calling for Jay Jacobs, who's head of the Democratic Party, uh, to be removed. Um, he also lost his own county, every seat down on Long Island. But for some reason, we can't quite figure out um, Kathy Hochul, the governor who gets the call, who the chair of the Democratic Party is trying to keep him on. He played a similar role as a henchman for um, so uh, Governor Cuomo before he was replaced. So this will be very interesting moving forward, how this all plays out. For a peace bucket, Mark talks with Code Pink's Medea Benjamin about the reports that a Russian missile in the war in Ukraine has landed in Poland, killing two and raising the possibility that NATO will step in to respond. We're joined by a longtime uh, peace activist, uh, Medea Benjamin. Um, 
well known for being one of the co-founders of, of Code uh, Pink. I, we've had Medea on to talk previously about some peace issues. And I initially asked her because on Tuesday, the reports had came out that some Russia-made missiles had actually uh, landed in Poland as part of the ongoing war with uh, Ukraine. And that was leading to increased calls for intervention since Poland is a member of, of, of NATO. But it, it seems to have been diffused a little bit in, in, in more recent hours. But can you give us um, an update as to what's going on? Well, it was a very scary time yesterday when it seemed like this might have been inadvertently a missile from Russia, but that that would be a justification for invoking Article 4, getting an emergency meeting together of NATO, and then potentially invoking Article 5, which is calling for NATO countries to defend another NATO country, which would have meant a, um, a massive escalation of this war. Uh, luckily, it turns out that this was not a Russian missile, but it was a Ukraine missile that was um, inadvertently uh, sent into Poland, and that this has calmed the tensions. I'm, I do want to point out that Secretary General of NATO, Jen Stoltenberg, uh, did come out and say, well, in any case, this is not Ukraine's fault, it's Russia's responsibility as it continues its illegal war against Ukraine. Uh, while he was quite hawkish about the whole thing, uh, others, including the U.S., were seemed uh, happy to walk it back because they have been anxious not to have a direct war with Russia. And this uh, moment, I don't feel we, we should feel complacent about, though, because this is bound to happen again. And that is why this war is so dangerous, not only for all the people that are being killed in Ukraine today, but for the potential of it becoming a direct war between Russia and NATO and potentially a nuclear war. Well, it's interesting that uh, the Biden administration sought to defuse the, a little bit uh, the response to uh, this particular missile attack, because right now the G20 groups are, are meeting out in uh, Bali uh, while the rest of the world is meeting uh, for COP27 about climate. And the reports have been is that Biden has really been pushing the G20 countries to be more aggressive uh, about Russia, starting with uh, imposing some caps on the price that they're willing to pay uh, for Russian uh, oil and gas. So <clears throat> it certainly seems that the Biden administration is continuing to try to escalate uh, the tensions with Russia. Well, the Biden administration is very divided. When you see the head of the Joint Chief of Staff, um, uh, Mark Milley saying that uh, the winter time is a good time to uh, ease the war, to seize the moment, to go to the negotiating table. And then he gets pushback from people in the administration uh, that are uh, totally content to keep this war going and see Ukrainians dying every day in their effort to weaken Russia. So I don't feel that there is a unified message coming from the Biden administration now, but it does show that there is tremendous concern about uh, an, an intentional or unintentional direct conflict with Russia. And that is evidenced by the fact that there are talks going on not between 
Putin and Biden and not between the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, who should be talking to his counterpart in Russia, but between the head of the CIA, the head of the National Security Council and the Secretary of Defense, because they don't want to see this expanded. Well, this has become, you know, uh, a very nasty war of attrition. The longer the war goes on, obviously, the more people are, are, are being killed on uh, both both sides. What what are the real prospects for at some point, uh, especially with, you know, the Ukraine seem to be making some real advances that some type of negotiated settlement or at least ceasefire might come about? Well, Americans should not believe the narrative that we often hear in the mainstream media that this is a war that can be won by the Ukrainians. Every time there is an advance being made, there is a response from Russia. For example, when the Russians retreated from Kherson, which was seen as a, uh, a victory for Ukraine, then immediately Russia responded by lobbing all of these missiles and destroying more of the electrical grid and leaving more millions of Ukrainians um, in, in the dark and potentially in the very, very cold this winter. Uh, so there, for every action, there is a reaction. This is not a winnable war. We hear that from the generals, both former and ones in power now, saying it's not going to be won on the battlefield. And so I think um, it is the most rational thing to say, if this war is going to be solved at the negotiating table, why aren't we pushing for negotiations? And that's what the American people have to do more, Mark, which is to push our members of Congress and the White House to take a rational position to say we need a ceasefire and negotiations. Now, I, I did not pay attention to Tuesday night's announcement. At least I didn't listen to it that uh, Mr. Trump is running again for the White House. But apparently he was trying to make the argument, well, if I was president, this war wouldn't be going on or something along that line. He has said that at his various campaign rallies. And he mentioned last night, you get Biden and you get war. You had Trump and you had peace. And of course, it's not true, but it's the narrative that he's putting out there. He says that he would have talked to Putin and the war would have never happened. And perhaps that is true. But the important thing to understand is that he knows that this is a message that resonates with a strong base, not only of in the Republican Party, but the American people in general. And I think the Democratic Party is doing itself a tremendous, tremendous disservice, as well as a disservice to the Ukrainian people uh, by uh, shooting down the messengers within the Democratic Party, like the 30 progressive Congress people who said uh, we should be calling for negotiations uh, by making them withdraw that letter to Biden and walk that back. Uh, they are leaving the peacemaking position, uh, the one of the Republicans and not only Trump, uh, but the 57 Republicans who voted against the $40 billion package. And there's another package that will be coming up soon. Let's see what the Republicans do about that. Uh, and it's, um, it's often the extreme right-wing Republicans who are picking up the banner of making peace, which just does not make any sense at all. But the American people, if they're looking for a way out of this to stop sending tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine and use it instead to help people here at home, uh, they're going to be looking for what party that is. And right now, the Democratic Party is more uh, clearly the party of war. 
Now, most, you know, American peace groups, while recognizing that certainly the United States and NATO have been provoking Russia for many years by continuing to expand NATO, most American peace groups have condemned the Russian invasion uh, of the United States as, as, as being illegal and an act of war. But they're also seeing a pretty strong agreement among most peace groups that the United States should not be, you know, arming uh, any side in any war because that just belongs the killing. It appears likely that the Republicans will have a narrow margin control uh, in the House. Democrats will still control the Senate. Will that change around any of the dynamics in terms of what the United States does in terms of um, this particular war? I don't think it will change the dynamics in terms of sending military or allocating um, there's another $23 billion package that will come up. I think that will pass because all of the Democrats will vote for it and the Hawks in the Republican Party will vote for it as well. But hopefully what it will do is bring up more of a discussion about this war and about the U.S. position and um, perhaps allow for some of these Democrats who felt pushed back when they called for negotiations uh, to get a spine and start doing that again. And that depends a lot on their constituents if they start hearing more from us because the 57 Republicans who voted against the $40 billion package, many of them said they did so because they were hearing from their base. We've been talking with uh, Medea Benjamin and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Yeah, we had to cut off uh, Medea's last minute, um, but one of the things she was pointing out is this really is a moment where peace groups in the Democratic Party need to be pressuring and speaking up, saying no more weapons uh, for this particular war. We will continue to cover um, the Ukraine as part of our weekly peace segment on Wednesday. And for those of you just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunlay. And I'm Sally Becker. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, a co-worker, a relative, your next-door neighbor. And you can find today's story and more at mediasanctuary.org. Up next, Dr. DeCoster is a professor at Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, teaching bioethics. HMM correspondent Eunice Jong spoke with Dr. DeCoster about intersectionality in the medical field and microaggressions. This is Eunice Jung, and today I'm talking to Dr. DeCoster from Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences regarding how intersectionality relates to medicine. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Can we get started with a brief introduction of yourself? Sure. My name is Dr. Barry DeCoster. I'm a philosopher by training. Uh, most of my work is in philosophy of science or bioethics. 
I am an associate professor in the Department of Population Health Sciences at ACPHS, Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, where I teach both pharmacy students and a lot of public health students. So before we start off with this conversation, can you tell us what intersectionality is? Sure. Intersectionality, I think it's getting more uptake in recent years in sort of popular culture as a discussion. For me, I think about it as a tool for understanding identity in a more complicated way. Um, identity is more than our physical bodies. It's kind of how we name ourselves, who we are in a more complicated way, how I see you and how you see me. That's more than just our physicality. It's ourself in a more um, interesting way in many ways. And there's a lot of things that shape who our identities are. Some of it is our biological stuff and our inherited connections to our families. But then there are things like the common ones might be our gender, our sexuality, our race, our age, our economic status, our class. And intersectionality is like a lot of things in philosophy. It's a tool for understanding something that's really complex and it gives us a way into it. Intersectionality also allows us to understand that on those identity threads, the different aspects or facets of ourselves, sometimes they come with different power abilities, right? They name what I'm allowed to do or what I'm expected to do or how I look at you and expect certain things or prevent you or don't expect certain things for you to be possible. So um, I identify as a white gay male. And so as a white guy, I have a lot of sort of social capital. A lot of things in the world are sort of built to make things easier for me. Um, when you think about me as a gay guy, like certain things change in that facet. Uh, intersectionality came in a, a number of different definitions and it's been debated over the years and just kind of different models. I intersectionality has a couple different definitions. Um, Kim Crenshaw, a lawyer, kind of became really popular. She popularized the term, um, thinking about this as sort of multiple aspects of ourselves. So you can almost think about it as a multi-dimensional graph um, where um, especially black women are sort of located in different spaces than black men, apart from white women, apart from white men. And in that way, it's a useful. Some people see it as a kaleidoscope of our identities colliding. Um, the Combahee River Collective, which had really important roots and still to, to this day in Albany, New York, um, and some of its members thought about it as intersectionality. It was what would happen if we theorized policies, ethics, beginning with the experiences of black women, making black women's space safe and important, centralized, and then that would work to improve their lives as black women, but everyone around them. So there's different models for what this means. So you've mentioned about the expectations to certain groups and the collisions of them. Or So how is it different to be in multiple groups, not one specific group, making intersectionality what intersectionality is? Right. So sometimes people have thought over the years about oppressions and identities as sort of the harms of different identities as what I think of as the additive model. They're like little Lego blocks or little paper cuts that kind of stack on top of each other. Intersectionality says that we just begin in different locations about what's expected or possible for our lives. And that for me is an interesting way of doing two things, asking about, let's say, the patient who's in front of us, what are the options that they had available to them before they came to the hospital? Right? What are the harms or hardships that they might have faced that not everybody would have? And then it also says for both patients and physicians in medical ethics, they have different tools that they're ready when they're thinking about how to respond carefully and ethically for this patient. So again, intersectionality there is just a, 
almost like a microscope or a lens that lets us ask different questions on how to help the patient in front of us. You just briefly mentioned about hospital, but when it comes to medical accessibility or medical field in general, how is intersectionality portrayed and such? Yeah, I think that's a good and complicated question. It's hard. Sometimes we're at the policy level, right? We will be making laws or um, goals, trying to help certain groups. So population health often thinks about big populations, right? Um, women in Albany County, say from a certain age range, 18 to 25. When you're thinking about that, you can sometimes totalize or make that group seem like they're uniform. But within that group, there's going to be a lot of variation. In that. And I think it's important to sometimes keep both the simple rule where we're tar say targeting women's health but also the more complicated conversations knowing that those women are not going to be monolithic in their abilities or their resources that they have available also in the harms that have sort of slowed down their good health or their ability to make change in their own life and so intersectionality in that way is a, a tool to kind of keep both the big picture and the very microscopic individualized conversation in play so you can kind of move back and forth between the two of them this kind of connects to our last very question, but you said that young people were mostly exposed during those movements, but as they are becoming like future doctors or health professionals, they're more likely to be open or exposed to such matters. And I wanted to, like, this was part of my last question about future plans for intersectionality in the medical field. But even before that, I would like to um, acknowledge microaggression that occurs due to one's race, gender, class, et cetera, and such intersectionality. So can you address in what form a microaggression exists in a hospital or a medical field and why it's so much harder to fight oppression due to intersectionality? Yeah, so I think young people kind of brought these movements, give them a kind of momentum or kind of energy, but they were in place before too, in a number of ways, right? A number of um, women of color and especially queer women of color were behind these movements. And so one thing I always thought was interesting was sometimes the origins of these movements that might've started say a decade ago, um, sometimes got uptake and got talked about, but often it kind of got erased as if these movements were brand new. So there is, even that is a kind of interesting oversight. Microaggressions to connect that up are sometimes the way I think about them are these little paper cuts, little harms of oppression. They're not massive uh, systems that are really meant to limit you. They're just little dings. Um, again, I like that metaphor of a paper cut. The little things that happen to us along the day. Most people seem, assume that microaggressions, unlike say explicit racism, homophobia, sexism, which are intentional, Microaggressions themselves might be really unintentional or subconscious, uh, really hard to see, on, maybe on both sides, the one who's perpetrating and also the one who's receiving the microaggressions. And in those moments, they're more ephemeral. They might add up over time. And I, it's part of why I like the paper cut idea of sort of like over time, a paper cut might hurt, but you may not notice it except for little moments in the day when you, know, you go to pick up something and you, your thumb hurts. But over time, if you had a number of paper cuts, right, it's going to get more damage. And also, there's the possibility that one of those is going to get infected and cause really greater harm. Microaggressions kind of work that way. They're just little nicks at our identity, little harms. 
And whether or not you notice them, they're real. We feel them over time. And they do have bodily impact. It's hard to measure them on an individual basis. But when you step back and start thinking about communities that receive them, say people of color, queer folks, women, we can we ultimately can measure them in bodily well-being and psychological well-being. And we notice that people who receive them on a regular basis just have poor health outcomes, right? Higher stress rates, um, higher rates of depression, things like this. So in that way, microaggressions are an interesting way in. Um, it's maybe a, an extra tool along with oppression in that way. So if oppression is about what happens to large groups, how groups oppress, limit the lives of other groups, microaggressions is sort of another little tool talking about the really small, fine details of how harms happen here on individuals, uh, from individuals to individuals. So sometimes really, um, I think bad, much of this is immediately about medicine, but sometimes the way we talk about people, jokes we tell that aren't intentional um, might be a kind of microaggression. Uh, we have a greater emphasis today on talking about pronouns and identities, how individuals can choose their own pronouns. And I think part of that, for some people, they're like, they may resist that move and say something like, well, I don't think you should be reduced to any one word or there's a lot of stress for some people about thinking about the use of they them pronouns as plural rather they we were taught in grammar school you know they them is always a plural and using it about an individual seems sort of grammatically incorrect and it jars them but part of the deal with asking people what pronouns they like to use and respecting that is to say i want to know how to make you feel comfortable and the sort of intentional Dismissal of that is probably not a microaggression, but when we repeatedly misgender people, I think that's a kind of microaggression and it hurts people, right? especially when they've already told you how they want to be treated. So, you know, if I started calling you Jennifer um, because I don't take the time to learn your name, like it might be because I was flaky and I had a really bad moment. But the more I do it, if it's intentional or sorry, if it's repetitive, that seems to me more closer to like a microaggression. Other microaggressions in medicine might be about whether or not we take who we take seriously about their pain and acknowledging whether or not they're being honest about their pain and so in some moments people of color there's been a lot of literature saying people of color have over years historically been undertreated for their pain at some point those are individual little moments and i think those could be microaggressions when you start stepping back and seeing them as big patterns that becomes probably something closer to like a systematic oppression system um, but I do think they're the, those two tools are kind of interrelated in some complicated ways that probably I can't lay out here, and I, but I would love to read more about like how others kind of see those connections. Well, thank you so much for ending this interview with thoughtful insight and for your remarkable thoughts today throughout, Dr. DeCoster. Uh, thank you for your questions. Nice to talk to you. So my wife teaches an online class at a local college uh, about plastics with about 100 people and about 25 are college students and 75 are older climate plastic activists. And she says that the community activists teach the students about the struggles in the real world to do social change. And the students teach the older people about pronouns. Um, this version uh, of this segment was abbreviated for the radio. For the full version, you can go to our website mediasanctuary.org, which includes a question on how the Me Too and Black Lives Matter movements 
impacted the medical field. Up next, Possible Worlds is an immersive dance performance that will be performed this Friday, November 18th, 2022 at 3 p.m. at Crave Lab in RPI's Tech Park. Possible Worlds is an immersive dance performance about identity formation and its relationship with mental illness and trauma taking place at the Crave Lab on Friday, November 18th. And to tell us more about it, I'm joined by three of the people who are behind this performance. So I'd love to have you introduce yourselves. Uh, Bibiana Ahmed. I work on the video and projections and uh, sort of the technical aspects of the installation. Mercedes Sear. I'm the director, choreographer, and performer. My name is Lara DeBrien, and I'm the costume designer. And we also have Miles the dog giving us some background noises in here. Mercedes, could we start by getting some overview of what is this performance? Sure. It's a semi-autobiographical piece um, that is meant to kind of bring us into our own bodies and the fact that I believe that we live in a limited body because we too closely identify with our stories and that by shedding certain stories, we can sort of open up our identity, but also what is possible for ourselves. Are you coming from an angle of that we limit our own stories or is it more outside? Where's the limitation coming from? I think it's a little bit of both. I think we over-identify with um, certain stories, particularly if they're traumatic or something that sort of is very charged and hangs onto us. But even in as like minute as how we organize our bodies, um, we get used to certain physical organizations. And in doing so, we get a sense of who we are as people. And I believe even as a physical practice that if we practice more, we're able to do more and it opens up the aperture. Viviana, could you talk a little bit about the video installation aspect? Crave is a very unique space, and we're tailoring this iteration of the project to the space. What's unique about it is that it's basically a 360 immersive sort of an ellipse with 14-foot-high projection ceilings, or, or screens, sorry, and surround sound by 120 speakers. So we can really pinpoint where images and sound are placed in relationship to the performing body. Uh, what's also interesting about it is that basically the audience and the performance are enclosed in the same space. So there will be some sort of a, some scripted and some unscripted interactions between the performer and the audience. So to work with some of the major themes of the piece, we're using some of the video pre-recorded where there's actually a lot of material that's going into the visual components. There is uh, sort of traditional video. Uh, we're also shooting some 360, so more three-dimensional video to put into this space that's really good with uh, simulating three-dimensional space and three-dimensional sound. And we're also working with AI. We have a small build that works in relationship with the performer. So we're pre-recording some AI sequences, artificial intelligence mm. sequences also. And all of these different sort of uh, technical images are sort of superimposed, multiplied and repeated or sort of desaturated and sort of almost like disappear depending on which part of the piece that we're in. So it's supposed to support the experience or the immersion of the audience into this sort of mental psychological state 
and I think that it will work, be more successful at doing that than a traditional proscenium stage, which is, you know, the traditional way of, in the Western sense of audience looking onto a stage and the performer being sort of distant. So we're collapsing these spaces both by the architecture of the room and then also really taking advantage of the scale and the intimacy that the technology provides in that space to maximize all of these sort of emotional embodied and visual and audio effects. Sorry, my dog is very active. (laughs) I'm very curious. So Lara, how does costume help to involve the audience and to convey the messages of the performance? What's really been exciting about this one, we're we're all born in, with a skin. Um, and as you live and as you have experiences, you start adding coats to yourself. And part of the what we're doing with this piece is actually having a physical shedding of some of those layers and some of those stories that are affecting us to get back to that place where it was before before the trauma, before the stories that have affected you. So we're playing a lot with, as we're building this together in the space, that we we have this week to explore how we use different layers, like physical layers, to shed away um, physically as we're shedding those emotional layers. So on the one hand, it's the shedding, but also it's layering on and really accepting every layer Trauma and mental illness tend to be spoken about as obstacles that need to be overcome, but your work looks at trauma and mental illness as aspects of our identity that get folded into our identity and potential catalysts for agency in our lives. So how is this work changing the narrative around these conversations? That's a great question. Um, Well, in one hand, since it is semi-autobiographical, I just have parts of myself that are knotted, that I can feel that keep coming back as um, thematic things in my work and just in my life, that I was interested in doing this as sort of like almost an exorcism of it. But it's also that it's very common on to some degree, especially in the current world and climate that we live in, to experience some form of trauma. And that we, that this is not just a dance piece, but also a practice that could be used, that you can use art as a way of telling your story and sort of ridding at least the charge around it. It's not that there's something wrong with that part of your identity. It's made you who you are. It's not looking at mental illness or trauma in a negative way, but instead of fully integrating it so that it isn't a place where you, like a muscle that's knotted, that you just can't like smoothly go past. So it's really about sharing as an act of this is common, this is communal, but it's not even just about my story. It's as a as a viewer, it's supposed to bring you into your own places that maybe you're stuck or that maybe things need to be communicated in order to release. There's a high probability that some of the audience who comes to be involved in this performance will have trauma of their own. Is there anything that people should be prepared for as they come into it? Yeah, I mean, we have a grounding moment at the very beginning. Um, uh, Actually, our composer, Michael Kammers, comes out of a Buddhist meditation um, lineage, as well as he's currently going to school for um, music therapy, so using music as a therapeutic tool. So we've had a lot of uh, conversations about trauma, being trauma-informed, and that this is a choice to be, especially in a space like this, where there is so much proximity to the dancer and to the story that 
we want to ground everyone first. And it is an opportunity for them to look at their own, as they're watching my story, identify with their own story, but that it's always an option that they can be as close or as far. They, they have the agency to move within the space. They can also leave. Um, so we're really trying to have a co-experience, but that in no way do we want to re-traumatize someone or bring something negative up for someone else. So this performance is coming up on Friday, November 18th at 3 p.m. at the Crave Lab. What other information should listeners know for attending this event? It's free and open to the public. We'll have a little conversation afterwards with some wine. You know, that always incentivizes. And um, everyone's really talented. And it's been a pleasure to get to play in this space and try this next iteration. I guess I would just add that you have also consulted with um, a therapist, uh, Daniel Thompson, correct? And we would like to obviously thank Cray for the opportunity and for the week-long residency. I also, even though I'm not a licensed or mental health professional in any way, I don't think we have any triggering moments in the piece. We've definitely, like in terms of the visuals, I can speak for that. And I also, the one thing that we really didn't cover, we often talk about mental illness as like an individual thing, but I think this piece also alludes to how we may be around mental illness that may be uh, someone else's and how you reconcile those dynamics and how those dynamics also affect you if you're, let's say, grow up in, a con- in conditions like that or have certain more long-term exposure and how it's sort of internalized. So I think it's kind of important, and I think people will find different ways of relating to the piece, not just from necessarily their first-person individual experience, but maybe also through more secondary or tertiary experiences. Well, thank you so much for coming on to Hudson Mohawk Magazine and for telling us about possible worlds. Thank you, Bibiana, Mercedes, and Lara. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And so that will be um, performed Friday, November 18th at the Crave Lab in RPI's Tech Park, 3 p.m. And that was Sina Basila Hickey speaking with Mercedes Searer, uh, direction, choreography, and performance. Bibini, um, Med, a video installation and film, and Louder de Brun, costume and fabric design. What is something that you wish everyone would consider or do more? How do you wish people would treat you differently? In the Dear World Vox Pop series, Lavender attempts to get answers to these questions, asking people from various walks of life to tell us what we need to hear from the world. Hi, I'm Lavender, and this is the second compilation of street interviews as part of my series, Dear World. This set of interviews was taken at various retail outlets of a shopping plaza in upstate New York on the morning of November 15, 2022, which happens to be my aunt's birthday. Shout out to her. I was just wondering, is there a certain way that people treat you that you wish they would do differently? Um... I think over here, people treat me pretty good. Um, I have, well, there's issues, obviously, but um, the customers here are not that bad. They're pretty patient. Um, you know, I'm often by myself here because, um, because we're really short staff, but people are pretty patient. They, um, they're kind of considerate, too. There's always problems, but um, most 
all of them experience here have been pretty good. Okay. Um, and just in general, is there anything you would say that you need from the world that you, a message to the world that you would want to share? Um, be kinder. That's all. Be kinder okay. to one another. Um, love is stronger than hate. There's too much hatred in the world. So much division. Um, people just need to uh, just be kinder. Being kind could just go a long way. Great, thank you. Um, would you mind sharing some demographic information about yourself if you're comfortable? Um, black, female, uh, uh, Gen Z. That's it. Okay, thank <laughs> you so much. No so, I was just wondering, is there a specific way that you notice people treat you that you wish they would do differently? People need to be nicer to each other, for sure. Especially in working in like retail. People are so rude for no reason. So is that something you specifically experience? Oh, yeah. So all you the, work in retail? Yeah, we work here, Dollar Tree. And what about outside of work? Outside of work? Hmm. I don't know. I don't really go anywhere, so I don't socialize really out. People are rude though, so they need to uh, work on that. Okay, um, and is there, I mean, I guess you kind of answered this already, but is there something you need from the world that you want to send out, just a message you want to communicate? Just remember, like, people go through things, and you should be nice to everybody, because you don't know what shitty day people have, you know, basically. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Thank you, and then if you are comfortable sharing any demographic information about yourself, such as race, gender, sexuality, disabilities, etc. No, really. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Um, so, is I was wondering, is there a specific way that people treat you that you wish they would do differently? That treat me? Yeah, like your experience. Uh, not really. Because okay. I'm an old white lady. <laughs> <laughs> I get I get great, great treatment. Okay. Uh, Is uh, Was there anything specific you want to say to the world? Something that you need from the world? Or just a message you want to share? Uh, let me see. What's my message? My message is just to be kind to everybody and know everybody's going through something and don't take everything so personally. I think uh, most of us are wrapped up in our own lives and and uh, when we seem out of sorts it's not because of you it's because of me I don't know so that's it that's great thank you and you're welcome you already started to answer this but if you wouldn't mind sharing some demographic information about yourself like you said uh, I'm an gender. old white lady <laughs> yeah I'm an old white lady so I have a double d double benefit people <laughs> take care of you because you're old and because you're white, so you can get away with a lot of stuff when you're not white. Stop I can break the laws and everything. Go ahead, go ahead. Alex. I'm cold. Of course, nice I, to uh, see you. You too. Thank you so much for your I participation. Can, uh, yeah, I can. You know, like I sometimes I make a left turn where you're not supposed to, because I know if the cop stops me, I'm going to say, "Oh, officer, <laughs> I didn't see that." You know, so I have it all planned. So, okay. Good luck, on. Thank you so much. You're have welcome. a good day. You're so I was just wondering, is there a specific way that people treat you that you wish they would do differently? Um, people are usually pretty nice, um, unless they're in a hurry and then they can be pretty short, but you know, other than that, it's generally an alright. Like, you know, you always have people who are oddballs who come in and they just like, 
have something to say. But. And what about outside of work? Outside of work, people don't really bother me. Um, you know, people are pretty, you know, keep to their own, want to be by themselves, so they don't really come out. Okay. Um, just a couple more questions. Um, is there anything that you want from the world? Anything specific that you want to say to the world that you you need or you want to see more? Um, be patient. You know, everybody is just a human who is trying their best. So if you are demanding a lot or if you are over the top, like, too often, then it can really impact somebody because, you know, we all have feelings and, you know, we're all our own person. Great. And finally, if you're comfortable sharing any demographic information about yourself, such as sex, gender, race, sexuality, disabilities, etc. Um, I'm a bisexual woman. I have, you know, some mental health struggles, but other than that, I'm pretty privileged in my capabilities. Um, and age range, if you're comfortable? Um, I'm 21. Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, I was wondering, is there a specific way that people treat you that you wish they would do differently? Ooh. Um, I think people underestimate how um, intelligent I can be because I look younger, but I'm actually 35. So, yeah. <laughs> so I get treated a little differently because I look younger than I am. So people assume that I'm more naive. Um, yeah, I have no life experience. I feel that. I'm yeah. 24, but I look like a teenager. I get it. <laughs> um, and do you have just anything else that you need from the world or a message that you want to share to the world? Be kind. That's it. And if you're comfortable, would you mind sharing any demographic information about yourself, such as race, age, uh, gender, sexuality, disabilities? Um... Female, single, straight, um, white, Caucasian, um, that's about 35. <laughs> Old. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. Good luck with that. And that was another one of Lavender's Dear World Vox Pop series, which will be popping up on a regular basis here on the Hudson Mohawk magazine. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sally Becker. I'm Mark Dunley. Engineer was Sina Basila Hickey. Uh, we want to thank all the volunteers who made this episode possible, uh, including Eunice Young, Lavender, Sally, and myself. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.